If you're a movie star, the place to be is, of course, Hollywood. But if you're a lawyer who wants to defend death row inmates, the most obvious place to work is Texas, which, from one year to the next, consistently executes more people than any other state in the country. David Dow is one of those lawyers. A distinguished professor at the University of Houston Law Center, he has represented more than 100 death row inmates over the last 20 years. His memoir, The Autobiography of an Execution, was published in February 2010. I began my conversation with Professor Dow by asking him whether working so hard for what so often turn out to be very temporary stays of execution ever makes him feel that he's merely prolonging the suffering of his clients. Here's what he had to say. Wow, that's, that, that's, a, that's an amazing question. And the answer is yes, I absolutely feel that way mm-hmm. uh, sometimes. I think that I've had clients who they don't want to be executed, obviously. But once they have an execution date, In those cases where we manage to get a stay and get past that execution date, they're not always joyful. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I open the book with that story that you just told is precisely because they're not always joyful. It's interesting, in the death penalty community, there are, we refer to clients who want to surrender their appeals as volunteers. And it's not uncommon for death row inmates to tell their lawyers, I don't want to do anything. I don't want you to appeal for me. I just don't want to live under these conditions. Just let me get executed. Mm -hmm. And in the death penalty community, there are some lawyers who take the view that that type of request is never really a legitimate request, that there's always some factor that is influencing the inmate in such a way that it is corrupting or interfering with his volition. Mm-hmm. And I understand that view. Mm-hmm. I have a different view. I think that it's certainly true in some cases <coughs> that the so-called volunteers are not really making competent volitional decisions. But I think some people are. And so when you have an inmate who is already conflicted about whether he even wants to contest his death sentence, and then you, at the last moment, avoid that death sentence and buy an extra 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever it is. I've certainly had some clients who are not elated by that because it means that they're going, they they know that they're they're still going to be executed. Mm -hmm. And so now what they have is another month, two months, three months where the date is circled on their calendar and they're again, living the last days of their lives over again. I think that's difficult to do. You say in your book you're careful not to give your clients false hope. What's wrong with a little false hope in a situation like that? Yeah. Maybe, not, maybe nothing. I, I, one of the interesting things that's happened since I've written the book is that I think that I've gotten more blowback from death penalty lawyers who do what I do than I've gotten from death penalty supporters, which Uh. I think is kind of interesting. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do with the book was to at least suggest some things that I personally have in common with death penalty supporters. And one consequence of that, I think, is that I've gotten some resistance from death penalty lawyers. And some of that resistance comes in the area that you've just identified. I'm very straightforward with Mm -hmm. my clients. Now, I should say that I do two different kinds of death penalty work. Some of my clients are clients who I represent beginning fairly early in the appellate process. So perhaps I represent them during the first state habeas appeal, Mm -hmm. or perhaps I represent them during the first federal habeas piece of litigation. But in my office, we do a great deal of what we refer to as crisis litigation, cases where we really come in after there's already been a state habeas and after there's already been a federal habeas. Mm -hmm. And before 1996, before the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act was signed, it it was possible. It wasn't common, but it was possible to get relief in these cases even if you didn't enter the case until fairly late in the process. 
Now, after 1996, it's still possible, but it's very, very difficult. And so I tell my clients that. Why do I tell them that? Well, it's not that I want to squash their hope just to make it easier on me when I call them at 20 minutes to 6 on the day they're going to be executed to let them know that the last appeal was just denied and they're about to be executed. It's not, not just that, although I'll certainly admit that that's part of it, but it's because these are human beings who have lives that many of them want or need to wrap up. They have moms and dads they want to say goodbye to. They have brothers and sisters. Many of them have wives or girlfriends, sons and daughters. And if somebody told me that I had 30 days to live, Mm -hmm. I would want that person to be honest with me so that I could say goodbye to the people that I want to say goodbye to and so that I could you know, write letters to the people that I felt like I need to write letters to. And if you don't tell your client until the day before the execution or the hour before the execution that it's, it's really going to happen, I think you've robbed your client of the ability to wrap up his life in the way that most people would want to. Is the question analogous to... Uh what you want, would want your doctor to tell you if you have a terminal illness. I mean, I've had this conversation with my wife, yes. and I'm kind of uh, um, undecided on the question, but my wife is very clear that she would want the doctor to lie through his teeth. Yes. Uh, yes. So I guess everybody's different. But yes. is that, is the, is the, are the questions analogous, do you think? I, I think that the questions have some similarities, but I would also want my doctor to lie through his teeth. <laughs> And the reason, but there's a reason. Would I mean, you want your lawyer is, to lie to you if you were on death row? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think that my clients would want me to lie to them. I'll tell you what I think the difference is. Uh, and I could be completely wrong about this. But what I think the difference is, is that the attitude of the patient matters, whereas the attitude of the inmate doesn't make any difference. So that when I'm confronting an illness, my father-in-law died of melanoma. And I think that he died sooner than he would have because he basically gave up. Mm -hmm. He just conceded that this disease was going to kill him, and so he stopped living. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he would have died on exactly the same date at exactly the same time if he had fought it aggressively. But I have this notion that where physical ailments are concerned, that one's attitude actually matters. Whereas, for my clients, their attitude doesn't matter at all. Mm -hmm. Whether we succeed in getting a state judge or a federal judge (coughs) to intervene in the case and grant us some sort of relief is 100% completely unaffected Mm -hmm. by the attitude of my client. So I think that it's different in that respect. But what you're saying now, in my mind, kind of comes back to the question of how important is it to fight for every moment of life that you can fight for. I mean, melanoma is a tough illness. I've had yeah. a friend die of that. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a very tough thing to fight. Yes. And is it important to fight it up until you can't possibly fight it anymore? Mm-hmm. And I guess the same question applies to these death cases for people, right? And, and I think that for the lawyers who are the ones actually doing the fighting, it is important. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would never tell the lawyers in my office that it's hopeless. And in fact, I tell the lawyers in my office exactly the opposite. I'll, I'll be at the prison and I'll tell the client, I just want you to know that these are all the things we're going to do, but the likelihood is that none of this is going to work. And then I'll come back to the office and by the time I've driven the hour and 45 minutes back from the prison to my office, I've already started to think about all the reasons that we're actually going to win. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's a very different sort of thing. I wouldn't want the lawyers in my office to have a defeatist attitude as they're writing the pleadings and doing the investigation and conducting the interviews. And mm-hmm. so I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with your point about the importance of fighting up until the end. I think all that I'm saying is that it's really the lawyers who are fighting up until the end, and I would like the, the client to have a more realistic assessment of mm-hmm. what's likely to happen. Of the hundred or so uh, inmate, death penalty inmates who you've represented, 
you say roughly seven of them were people who you thought were factually innocent. Yes. Do you think that they experienced whatever additional time you were able to, to win for them? Did they experience that time differently than the clients who made no bones about their guilt? In one sense, I think the answer to that is yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because clients who are innocent feel vindicated when they win in a way that clients who are guilty don't feel vindicated when they win. So if I have a client, for example, who's clearly guilty and who has never contested his guilt, mm -hmm. but who might have a very strong Batson claim, a claim that the prosecutors wrongfully got rid of all of the minority members from the jury veneer. Mm -hmm. We might prevail on that Batson claim at the very last minute. I think my client might or might not be happy to be still alive the day after we prevail on that claim. But I don't think the client feels vindicated in any meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Whereas clients who are innocent, when they prevail, even if it's not on the claim of innocence, I think that they feel vindicated in the sense that there are now people out there who realize that they didn't commit this crime. Mm -hmm. So I think that I would expect that clients who I believe to be innocent to experience those additional days, weeks, months, whatever it is, in a somewhat different manner from clients who don't have a claim of innocence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know that you know you write about a client who you name Henry Quaker, uh, who expressed the feeling that he did not want to be alive, right. uh, knowing that other people believe that he killed his yes. wife and children. Yeah, Quaker was an unusual person in the sense that the only people that he had a human connection to on Earth aside from his mom, who was already quite elderly right. at the time that he was executed. But aside from his mom, the only people that he had a human connection to on Earth were killed in this crime that he was sent to death row for committing, although mm -hmm. I don't think that he committed it. Mm -hmm. And so when he was unenthusiastic about living anymore, it was precisely because, from his point of view, there wasn't anything to live for. His view was that even if he weren't in prison anymore, he would still have, have lost everything. Mm -hmm. you know, I remember he told me in a conversation that we had fairly early in our relationship with one another that he didn't think that if he ever got out of prison, that he would even enjoy the things that he had once enjoyed. He had, he had enjoyed making music. He was, a, he was a piano player. He told me he didn't think he would enjoy it anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, he had enjoyed cooking before he was in prison. He told me that he didn't think that he would enjoy cooking or eating mm -hmm. anymore. And so I think that he was an example. Now, might that all have changed if we had actually succeeded and he had gotten out of prison and met somebody else and of course all of those things could have happened and I think they probably would have happened yeah but at the moment that he and I were conversing they hadn't happened and so he was viewing his life as it actually was rather than as it might be if right. he got out and he and yet you were fighting like crazy to save his life yes uh, so I, is there a conflict there yeah um we did fight like crazy to save his life. I don't think he should have been executed. I, I, I do think that. I do think that if he hadn't been executed and he had gotten out of prison, he would have had a very hard time for a while. I mm -hmm. do think that. Mm -hmm. But I think that I also think that he would, eventually, have. Constructed a new life for himself. Yeah. Well, I certainly don't feel like I was. Torturing him by doing what we were doing. Uh -huh. But you were working against what he conveyed to you was his interests. Well, what I try to say in the book is that he indicated to me that 
he could live with any outcome. That if we succeeded in proving that he was innocent, that he would live with that outcome. But that if we didn't, he could live with that too. I, I, I continue to think to this day, and it's been a number of years now since Quaker was executed, but I continue to think to this day that part of what was going on in the conversations that he and I were having was that he was he was comforting me. Yeah. He was trying to let me know that if we didn't succeed and he got executed, it was really okay. Uh-huh because his will to live wasn't so strong yeah. that we were really taking anything away from him that was very meaningful. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, he was saying he didn't have a strong will to live. and I guess he was saying that he didn't want to live, but at the same time, he didn't tell you to stop. Correct. Correct. He didn't. He came close on one occasion that I recount in the book to telling me to stop, but he didn't actually tell me to stop, and then he later took it back anyway yeah. and yeah. said that he wanted us to do whatever we could do. Uh, you've represented 100 death row inmates. How many of them have been executed, would you say? Half. Half of them have been? Maybe more than half, maybe has, 60. Has anyone been ever released because they've been found uh, actually innocent? Nobody who I've represented has actually walked out of prison. I've represented, obviously, quite a few people who are no longer on death row who have been moved to mm -hmm. uh, general prison population. Mm -hmm. And some of those people will, at some point, if they're not already, be eligible for parole. But I wouldn't expect any of them ever actually to be out. Mm -hmm. Oh, I take it back. I take it back. Gosh, how could I have forgotten this? Yes, we represented Michael Tony. And Michael Tony was released, who was factually innocent. Mm -hmm. And Michael Tony was released from prison in early to mid-2009. Mm -hmm. And then tragically uh, died in a single car, car wreck Gosh. Uh, before the end of the year, after he'd been out of prison for less than a year. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. It, it occurs to me that in your business, the standards of success are a little odd. Yes. Like, for example, uh, if someone uh, dies of AIDS yeah. before he's executed, that for you is a success. Um, if, if, if someone ends up in prison for the rest of their, their, their life yes. for a crime they didn't commit, that's a success. Uh, if someone commits suicide, yeah. before they're executed. Do you consider that a success? It, it's perverse. I realize it's perverse. <laughs> you know, but yeah. what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to keep the state from killing my clients. Uh -huh. And so if the state doesn't kill my client, then I've succeeded in saving my client from being killed by the state. You had one client commit suicide on you, didn't, didn't yes. you? Yes, I, I had I myself had a client commit suicide, and there have been, in the years that I've been doing the work, probably three or four inmates just in Texas uh, who have committed suicide. It's hard to commit suicide on yeah, on, on death row because there are, there are suicide watches, there, right? It's because particularly once somebody has an execution date, mm -hmm. it's almost impossible to commit suicide. But before somebody has an execution date, it can be done. It's difficult. The Inmates are obviously watched almost constantly, so it's difficult, but it's possible. To, to what length will the state go to save the life of someone so that they can execute that person? Uh, I mean, like to extraordinary lengths is yeah. the answer. We had a we had a inmate that we were representing a couple of years ago who managed to I don't remember. I don't remember how he tried to kill himself. I think that he had somebody smuggle barbiturates into the prison, which meant that it was a guard who was helping him do that. And he was taken by the prison to get emergency medical care. They pumped his stomach. They kept him in the hospital for a few days till they could restore his health. And then they took him back to the prison and 
two weeks later executed him. Hmm. Which, which is, I mean, it's an interesting question because I think that what it reveals is the whole ritualistic. Right. It's very ritualistic. Very ritualistic. I yeah. mean, and it reveals how ritualistic mm-hmm. it is. Why don't we just let this guy die? Right. You know, I mean, we in, instead we intervene in his life, we we save him, and then we take him back to the prison and kill him in this ritualized way. I've always thought that if a case came up where it was proven that uh, an individual was executed who was innocent of the crime that he was uh, accused and convicted of, that that would have a profound impact on, uh, on the death penalty. And, and, and many people believe that we now have that case, the, the case of Todd Willingham, which got a lot of publicity. He was accused of... Uh, 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 burning his house down and killing his children in that fire. Uh, there were, at the time of uh, the execution, uh, a lot of questions about how good the expert testimony was yes. that convicted him. Uh, and those questions have only got more compelling since his execution, it seems. Um, has that case had any impact at all uh, on the system? Uh, it's probably had a little bit of impact on the system. I don't think that it's had very much impact on the system. Mm-hmm. I think that for most people who support the death penalty, at some level, they might not be willing to admit it and they might not be capable of articulating it, but at some level, they've already come to grips with the fact that we're going to execute somebody who's innocent. And honestly, how could they not have? The criminal justice system is made up of human beings. Human beings are inherently fallible. And so it's unavoidable, logically, that the criminal justice system is going to make mistakes. I think for many years in the U.S., we deluded ourselves about how common those mistakes were But those delusions have been revealed by the DNA exonerations that we've seen over the last 10 or 15 years. We now have more than nationwide 250 people who've been exonerated on the basis of DNA. Right. And so to the extent that human beings can be certain about anything, we're certain that those 250 people were convicted of something they didn't do. Why would you think that we don't make those mistakes in death penalty cases? Why would you think that the mistakes that we make in death penalty cases, we magically, mysteriously, mystically catch at the very last moment? It's preposterous Mm -hmm. to think that. Maybe it's a pretense, but certainly people who are for the death penalty want to believe that no mistakes have been made. And maybe they've managed to convince themselves that that's true. I mean... The governor of Texas, do you think that he believes that innocent people have been executed? No, I think that he probably doesn't believe that, but there are lots and lots of delusional people. (laughs) You know, all that I'm saying that it is in fact a delusion, but there are many more people who aren't delusional than who are. And so I think that more death penalty supporters are non-delusional than are delusional, and I'm just talking about them. I think that the death penalty supporters who are not delusional have to say, well, look, of course we make mistakes. That's just the price of doing business. You know, the former, um, I can't remember if it was Bob Barr, the former member of Congress from Georgia, or Bill McCollum, the former member of Congress from Florida, who, um, one, one of them, I can't remember which, but one of them said, well, of course we're going to execute innocent people. Hey, Justice Scalia himself gave a speech yeah. where he said, of course we're going to execute innocent people. Now, some people might find that abhorrent. Right. I myself find it refreshingly honest. Uh-huh. I mean, at least, you know, they're admitting what to but me is not, obvious. But you're not going to have a majority supporting the death penalty if, if that is acknowledged that... that Innocent people are being executed, right? Well, that's precisely the question that, you know, you and I might disagree about. Yeah. I, 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 I think that you might not have 70% support the death penalty, but I wouldn't be surprised if you had 
50, 55 people supporting the death penalty, even if... Even with an overt admission. Even, I mean, with an, even with an overt admission. I can't let it pass that you uh, accuse Governor Perry of being delusional on this. Uh, does, does it matter uh, to your work uh, who the governor is? You know, at any given, you know, when you started this work, wasn't Ann Richards the governor? Yes, and, and she wasn't any better than anybody was, who came was, after Was her. Ann Richards delusional on this? I don't know if Ann Richards would have said that we've never executed an innocent person. George Bush, when he was governor, I believe he said that he didn't think that any innocent people had ever been executed. In he did say that. He said 100% of the people right. who, whose executions he didn't actually preside over, but right. was governor at the time that they were carried out, uh, were guilty. Was he delusional <laughs> or disingenuous? <laughs> well, with, with, with George W. Bush, it's hard to know which it was. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I think he was probably delusional. I think that he was, I think he was probably saying what he actually believed to be true. Now, we've been talking a lot about innocence, but you make the point in an earlier book that it's a mistake for abolitionists, death penalty abolitionists, to focus too much on the question of innocence, uh, that there are larger issues that the death penalty suggests. And, and yet, in your memoir, you choose to devote yes. uh, the largest part of your narrative to uh, the case of Henry Quaker, uh, who you believe was innocent. Yes. So are those, is your concern about spending too much time on the question of innocence at odds with the decision you made for this memoir? That's ironic, isn't it? Um, here's what I would say in my own defense. <laughs> What I would say in my own defense is that I've, I've spent a number of years suggesting that it's a mistake to focus on innocence when what we're talking about is the morality of the death penalty. And the reason I say that is that most people on death row aren't innocent. And so if there is going to be an argument for not executing most people on death row, it can't be an argument that's predicated on innocence because most of them aren't. And so what I've suggested is that what abolitionists really ought to focus on is something that almost everybody on death row has in common, which mm -hmm. is not innocence, it's something else. What is that something else? Well, it might be that they're human beings, it might be that there are constitutional violations, that there are trials that are egregious. It can be any number of things, but it's not innocence. So that is why I've been saying that for as long as I've saying it. But you're absolutely right. I then write a memoir. And although I talk about a number of cases where there isn't any innocence claim, it is true that the central case is somebody who I believe to be innocent. Why is that? Well, it's because this book isn't really a book about the death penalty, per se. I think that it's really more a book about being a death penalty lawyer. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about being a death penalty lawyer, it's much harder to have somebody who you think is innocent. When my clients are guilty and they get executed, then the lawyers and I sit around my office and we discuss all of the things that we could have done different and that we're going to do different next time. And then I go home, and I beat myself up for a while. And then I turn the page, and I say, you know what? I might have made a 1,000 mistakes. But it was my client who put himself in the position where my mistakes mattered. Mm -hmm. Whereas, when you have a client who you believe is innocent, you get home at the end of the day, and you review all of the thousand mistakes that you made, and there's not a page that you can turn. You can't say, I made all these mistakes, but it's my client who put himself in that position because he didn't put himself in that position mm -hmm. if you believe he was innocent. So the reason that I focused on Quaker is because even though I think it's a mistake for abolitionists to focus on innocence, I do think that there is something that is uniquely burdensome about representing somebody who you come to believe is innocent. 
Well, in general, isn't it true that criminal defense lawyers hate to represent people who actually didn't do what they're being accused of? Yeah, I th- I, there's there's that old saw about how <laughs> criminal defense lawyers say, you know, save me from an innocent client, right? Because it, you know, and, you, and, you, and the gravity situation of the situation is raised exponentially when your client's facing the death penalty. Exactly. exactly, and I think that's the reason that I ended up, you know, writing about. It's human nature, it seems to me, to work harder for people you like than for people you don't. Uh, There are obviously a lot of people that you've represented who you don't like, who are bad people. There are others who you have developed an affection for, like Henry Quaker. How successful do you think you've been at resisting that temptation to work a lot harder for those you like? that's a good question, too. I, I think I've been successful at it. You'd probably have to ask the lawyers who I work with to get the, the unvarnished view. But look, the truth is that I've had a lot of clients who I don't like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't detest them, but I don't particularly like them if I had the choice of not spending any time with them or spending time Some with them. Some of them are awful people, right? Some of them are awful people. Yeah. Yeah. Some, yeah. And, and, and I don't even necessarily say it's their fault. I mean, I've had clients who are awful people, and I can point to the A, Bs, and Cs of their lives that I think are the reason that yeah. they're awful people, but who cares about that? You, you know, would acknowledge I mean, some of the people that you've represented are evil. You would use that word? I, you know, I, I, yes, I would use that word. I, I don't think that there are a lot that I would characterize as evil, and what I mean by evil, since this was another thing that people in the death penalty community criticized me for, what I mean by evil... If you prefer a, a secular term, since a lot of people tell me that evil has heavy theological connotations to it, which I myself don't object to, but if you prefer a secular term, you can just call them bad. I don't care mm-hmm. whether they're called evil or bad. And what I mean by that is that they can't be fixed. They are just irreparably broken. And what that means is they need to be in prison for the rest of their lives for society to be safe. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know why they're irreparably broken. I'm not saying that they were born that way. I'm not saying that there's some notion of, you know, inherently bad people who come out of the womb already bad. I'm not saying that. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that by the time they get to the point that I know them, they can't be fixed. Is it because they were born that way? Is it because of what they ate? Is it because of the way they were treated? I don't have any idea. I'm not an expert in that field. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that I've represented a lot of people like that, but I've represented some people like that. And, and I think that death penalty opponents, that they lose credibility with people when they deny that there are such people. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a, there was a criminal in, you know, in California you know, who raped a child, you know, cut off her hands to make sure that nobody could find the skin that was going to be you know, under her fingernails, um, and, then, you know, and, then, and, then, and then leaves her. You know, and, and, and now... If somebody stands up in a room full of death penalty supporters, or for that matter, death penalty agnostics, and defends this person as a fundamentally good person, everybody in the room stops listening. I mean, somebody who rapes a child and cuts off her hands Mm -hmm. is not a fundamentally good person. There might be some explanation for why that person came to be the way he is, but I don't believe that that person is a fundamentally good person. And I've had clients who I don't believe are fundamentally good people. And isn't it that much harder for, to work really hard for those people, and so that's to, to the, miss your son's and, birthday for those people? And, yeah, <laughs> and, so, and so that's the question. Yeah. You know, it, by, by virtue of acknowledging that, am I somehow working less hard on their cases? And you know what? I think I'm not. You say you've tried to write an honest memoir without betraying any confidences. How, how difficult was that? That was very difficult. Mm-hmm. to be honest. And there were any number of points along the way where I thought I should stop writing. And then once I had a manuscript, there were any number of points along the way where I thought I should just put this in a folder and not ever do anything with it. Mm-hmm. And the reason it was hard is because in the previous death penalty books that I've written, and when I tell stories about cases in public, all that I'm talking about are facts that are in pleadings. So it doesn't really have anything to do with my relationships with my clients. Right. And this is a memoir that 
it has to do at some level with the stuff that was in pleadings, but it has to do really more fundamentally with my relationships with my clients. Mm -hmm. And so I had a number of question, a number of conversations with legal ethicists about questions that I had about how much I can disclose. And then once I had answers to all of those questions, I began to think, gosh, even though I now know what I'm allowed to disclose, maybe I shouldn't disclose it because maybe it's going to interfere with some relationship that I have with an existing client or a future client. If I have a client who reads this book and is concerned about whether his life mm -hmm. might end up in my next book, right. that's going to interfere with my relationship with my client. And so the question that you're raising is a question that I thought about often during the writing and even after I had finished writing uh -huh. the book. So the case of Henry Quaker, that, I presume that's not his real name. It's not his real name. But the facts of the case, uh, are, uh, as you present them, reflect what actually happened? Yes, the facts re reflect what, so what actually happened. So would he be identifiable to those you know, who are in the system, other lawyers, other judges, guards? Would they know who the individual is that you're talking about? I think some of them would. Uh -huh. I, think that, I think that certainly the lawyers who worked on the case, the lawyers who worked on all the cases in the book, would recognize the cases. So if they recognize the cases, have you honored the confidences? I, as I understand my obligation, mm -hmm. it is to make the identities of the clients not reasonably discoverable. So if you worked on the case, you're probably going to recognize it. If you didn't work on the case, I think you'd have a very hard time concluding okay. who it is. So we're talking about a, a very small universe of people that would rec be able to recognize the The case. lawyers in my office and the lawyers in the attorney general's office. And that's it? I, I, guards? I, I hope that's it. Um, guards. Some of the guards would recognize some of the cases. Judges? Yeah. So some of the judges would recognize some of the cases. So, yeah. <laughs> so what yeah. point have you crossed the line? I think that I've crossed the line at the point where somebody who has not had any first-hand contact with the case can figure out what it is by doing a Google search. You give the impression in the book that death row is filled with people represented by incompetent lawyers. And you name one lawyer in your book, Carl Christensen. Is, is that his real name? No. Um, do you think that but anybody in Texas will know what his real name is. Okay. Do you think lawyers, perhaps, in the profession, have a, an obligation to out these incompetent lawyers? Aren't they kind of like bad doctors killing people prematurely? I can tell you that this is a recurrent question in my office. Uh -huh. We have a weekly litigation meeting in my office. At least once a month, at our weekly litigation meeting when we get to the new business portion of the agenda. Yeah. We have a conversation about what is our obligation to out these terrible lawyers, whether they're trial lawyers, yeah. whether they're direct appeal yeah. lawyers, state I mean, habeas why lawyers. Why not name these bad lawyers? I mean, they, they are prematurely killing people. I mean, it's one thing if you're doing uh, estate planning or you're doing taxes. But these are lawyers who are, as you describe them, just egregiously incompetent, you know, showing up to trial uh, drunk, uh, sleeping, uh, you know, and, 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 and lives are literally, literally at stake here. Why not name these people? The only answer that I can give you is that we have named these people in legal proceedings. And I think that naming them in legal proceedings <clears throat> is appropriate because it's in legal proceedings that we are most likely to actually be able to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Naming them in my book, in the newspaper, on a blog, I don't think it would make any difference. Really? I think that, well, we've, we've named them to the people who have the power to make a difference. We've named them to judges. Mm -hmm. 
We've named them to trial judges who appoint them. We've named them to appellate court judges who appoint them in appeals. Mm -hmm. um, with some effect, I mean, mm -hmm. there, look, here's, here's, here's the reality. The reality is that the quality of trial lawyers in Texas in 2010 is infinitely better than the quality of the trial lawyers in Texas 20 years ago, mm -hmm. infinitely better. The quality of the appellate lawyers, it's not infinitely better, but it's better. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's important to acknowledge. I don't think that's necessarily the result of the willingness of my organization to identify bad lawyers, but I think that the willingness of my organization to identify bad lawyers has played a role in that. Now, I have to ask you about uh, Jocelyn Truesdale, yes. the judge, yes. uh, trial court judge in the Quaker case. Uh, now, you were asking her to withdraw the execution date, and with that decision, decision pending, uh, you describe this scene where uh, she makes a sexual pass at you, right? I mean, it's quite clear uh, what she's asking. And uh, you decide not to uh, go through with it. <laughs> but, um, you know, as you're thinking about it, what's going through your mind is the fate of your client. And there is at least um, uh, the chance that if you uh, go through with it, if you sleep with this judge, uh, you'll stand a better chance of getting the result you want. Uh, did all of that happen? Well, you know, I mean, again, the um, when, when you say did all of that happen, I mean, it, it's going to depend on what details we're talking about. Again, yeah. you know, altered details. So yeah. I can tell you that it didn't actually happen at the venue where but that this is judge set. made a sexual but, overture. Yeah, but I think that I wrote that in a way that it's clear that I'm describing what is going on in my mind and what yeah. what I think is going on there. The 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 judge didn't say you know, if you sleep with me, then X, Y, and Z are going to happen. And I think that the way I, I tell the story, it's clear that the judge didn't actually say that. Right. And of course, as we know... Do you mind if I read the passage? Because I think it's rather extraordinary, this, uh, this situation that you yeah. found yourself in. You write, she signaled the waiter, this is Judge Truesdale, and showed him her room key. She said, put this on my bill. She stood up and drank down the rest of her, mar her martini. She leaned over, and her lips were nearly touching my ear. I smelled the gin on her breath. I felt heat coming off her face. I felt her breasts pressing against my shoulder. She said, I think you'll find it worthwhile. I felt a drop of sweat in my armpit. She whispered, come on. I saw Quaker in his cell sitting on his metal cot reading. Everything was dark except for the book, illuminated by the 25-watt bulb of a small gooseneck lamp. I saw the crime scene photographs, Doris, Daniel, and Sharice, their skin hued yellow, their blood almost black. I saw Lincoln, uh, your son, sleeping. I heard Quaker say, in case you're wondering, I didn't kill my family. I said, Judge, I can't do this. It's a pretty amazing position for you to be in. Yeah, and you know, and and I mean, that 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 that's what happened, and and you know, it's in the context. Of, well, when you say that's what happened, you did scramble a few, the, the locale. I I, I I scrambled the locale. Maybe she wasn't drinking gin. Maybe she was drinking, you know, <laughs> Coke. Right. Maybe I've misdescribed what she was wearing. Um, uh -huh. You know, uh, I mean, there there are a number of. Details that, as I say, if it were journalism, it would be faulty journalism. Right. <laughs> but what I wanted to emphasize was that there are a series of, I don't know whether to call them encounters or scenes, that I describe in the book between the judge and me that are leading up to that mm -hmm. and that are about her and my relationship. 
And so at the moment where the scene that you just read occurs, there's been a development of her and my relationship. So it's not as if some judge that I didn't have any relationship with is all of a sudden calling me up and saying, hey, if you come sleep with me, I'll do something yeah. good for your client. And part of... I mean, you had the suspicion for a while that she was interested in you in that fashion. And furthermore, I think... Maybe this isn't true, but at least when I was writing it, I was trying to write it in a way that conveyed my own participation in that flirtation. I write, for example, about the scene where I returned to a restaurant where I had run into her, hoping that I'd run into her again. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, and I, and I also say in the afterward that she didn't make some quid pro quo uh, demand. Yeah, I read that. You don't feel that she did anything unethical. I don't. I don't think that she was making a quid pro quo demand. I think that I certainly Well, not overtly, felt... but there was this... Wasn't there an implicit quid pro quo there? Or at least, wasn't it reasonable to assume that there was an implicit quid well, pro quo Well, at the time there? that I'm writing about the scene, I'm obviously thinking about yeah. whether there is a benefit to... having a different type of relationship with her. Mm -hmm. That's how I wrote it, because that's what I was thinking. But then I don't, and then she does the right thing in the case. So I think that by definition there couldn't have been a quid pro quo or she wouldn't have done the right thing after I didn't sleep with her. And I think that I'm also fairly transparent about the possibility that I may have been overreading the situation. Really? Okay. Because <laughs> the way you write it, it's well. Seems... I think I think that I was. I mean, I'm I'm writing it from the perspective of what I was thinking. Yeah. No question about it. But I think that I also reveal in the book yeah. <laughs> several places that my thinking has historically not always been entirely yeah. correct. But let's say you didn't misinterpret. Then isn't it true that this judge was creating, if not the reality, the reality at least a strong impression of a conflict of interest? Because she was, you know, had to make this decision regarding your client, uh, you know, a very important decision. If you slept with her and then she went ahead and stayed the, uh, withdrew the execution date, that would look funny. Maybe it would even look worse if you slept with her and she then decided against you. That, yeah, that, that would, would be, be like the worst possible that, that outcome, be, you know? That would be unflattering, he, wouldn't it? He, you know? Exactly. So um, is, didn't the judge do something unethical by creating this, you know, at least apparent conflict of interest, assuming that you weren't totally delusional and you were reading, yeah. you know, reading this right. Maybe. I mean, maybe. You know, I mean, the, the reality is that um, there wasn't any sort of explicit quid pro quo, even at the time. And the further reality is that we didn't sleep together. And the further reality is that I think she did the right thing after we didn't sleep together. Because she ruled in your favor. Because she did what, <laughs> what she had previously expressed was what she thought was the right thing. Mm -hmm. She had previously expressed that she thought that the case had problems mm -hmm. and that the right thing to do was what she ultimately did. And she didn't not do that because we didn't, yeah. we didn't sleep together. Yeah. That's why I say that I think that... You're giving me a, a good lawyerly analysis of the situation. Yeah. Well, I hope I'm giving you a good lawyerly analysis. I'm a, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a lawyer, and, and at the time that 
I decided to write about that in the book, I had to think before I started to write about it what I thought about it. Yeah. And I think that it is not all that unexpected for lawyers to have personal relationships with judges. We have a case where we represent a death row inmate who was prosecuted by a lawyer who had had a secret affair with the trial judge Mm -hmm. prior to the trial. We say that's something that should have been disclosed. Sure. If the judge and I had slept together, that's something that probably I would have had to disclose. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't disagree that that relationship could have gone in a direction that would have required some additional disclosure. I'm just saying that it yeah. didn't. Yeah. Have you heard from this judge since your book came? Oh, out? sure. And what is, she, what was her, what's her reaction? Um, I, you is know, she I, mad that you no. told that story? No. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Let's get back to Henry Quaker. Um, you uh, talk about another uh, inmate uh, on death row, a guy named Green, who had information that suggested that Henry Quaker was innocent of the crime that he was convicted of. He told you that he had hired someone to kill somebody and that that assassin, in a case of mistaken identity, ended up killing Quaker's children uh, and his wife. And then you uh, um, struck a deal with Green's lawyer. Uh, you, you, you gave Green a polygraph test, and uh, the lawyer agreed that you could use the results of that test after Green had been executed. Are, are those kinds of deals common on death row? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, I mean, there are many occasions where somebody on death row has information that is of potential use to somebody else on death row. There are occasions when people not on death row have information that's useful to somebody on death row, and there are occasions when people on death row has information that's useful to somebody not on death row. Right. Um, And invariably, there's some conflicts that result. If I represent somebody who wants to exculpate somebody else on death row, take credit for somebody else's crime, that's a problem for me. Yeah. You know, I don't want this poor other guy who didn't commit the crime to get executed for it. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's not going to help my client for him to be taking credit for some murder that he's not convicted of. Yeah. So that's, 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 that's fairly common. I mean, that's a big type of conflict. So, yeah, I mean, so, you know, your obligation is to your client. Right. Does that obligation extend to, say, seeing another man executed for a crime he didn't commit, uh, knowing that your client committed that crime, um, but that if you divulge that information, that would compromise your ability to protect your client? I mean, it's the, it's the Alton Logan situation, yes. right? Yeah. Except in, in that case, it was about a life sentence. Right. But you're dealing on death row. Right. Have you been in situations where you feel that you have seen innocent men put to death for the crimes that you know your clients have committed? No. That's never happened to me, and that's, that's never happened to me, and I think that would be... Um, It, it, it would it would test my ability to live in accordance with the ethical rules, to live in accordance with the ethical rules in that scenario. What do you think you'd do? Do you have any idea? <clears throat> yeah, I have an idea. I think I probably wouldn't do anything. I'd probably do what the ethical rules require. I mean, we've had other cases that are not that dramatic, but where by virtue of our representation of a death row inmate, we 
learn something that in a different world I would be able to tell somebody else, but we can't. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we can't has consequences that I'd like to be able to avoid. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I would do. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the ultimate moral dilemma for a death penalty lawyer, isn't it? It is, and obviously not all that many have faced it. Do you know of lawyers who have faced it, who have told you about it? You know, we had a client um, who was executed, I think about four or five years ago, who claimed credit for a murder <clears throat> that somebody else is on death row for committing. If I really believed him, it would it would be it would be difficult to know what to do. It helps that I don't believe him. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm, and, and maybe that's just a defense mechanism. Maybe I don't believe him so I don't have to right. really confront the, the, the moral dilemma. But I don't believe him. Yeah. So if I had a client who was claiming credit for a murder that somebody else was on death row for, and I actually believed him, then we would go do an investigation, and if, which we would do clandestinely, and if the investigation revealed that it was probable or even possible, um, then I suspect what we would do is ask the client to free us from the attorney-client privilege and permit us to divulge it. And I would do everything in my persuasive power to persuade him to do that. And free us from the strictures that would otherwise prevent us from revealing it. Mm -hmm. that's, that's how I would proceed. And if the client said no, then that, that's the end of the story, huh? If the client said no, I would probably sit down with the people in my office and try to figure out if there was anything else we could do. Uh -huh. But if there was nothing else that we could figure out how to do and the, and the, and the client said no, I don't know. I don't know what we would do. We'd probably investigate the other case as well. And I'm not sure what we would do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Grace Paley is a sh famous short story sure. writer. I think she died a couple of years ago. Yeah. She? Yeah. Anyway, she she's, was fond of telling writing students that you don't want to write what you know because that's boring. Yeah. And of course, you don't want to write what you don't know because you know you won't have a clue what you're doing. Right. The, the trick is to write about what you don't know about what you know. Oh. And so that's I don't great. know if that I don't know if that resonates, yeah. but I'm wondering what I guess that's a fancy way of asking you what you've learned from writing this book. Yeah. I think that what that great aphorism from. Grace Paley reveals is that I could never write fiction. Because <laughs> she's, of course, talking about writing fiction. Right. And I could never write fiction because I couldn't do that. Um, but you're kind of explore because it's a memoir. Yes. You're, it, it, this is as much an exploration as it is, you know, a report about what happened. Yes. And you're exploring your own feelings. Yes. your own reactions to things. Yes. So in the process of doing that, have you learned something about yourself uh, as a result of going through this exercise? Oh, absolutely. I, I, yes, I absolutely have learned a lot about myself in, uh, in writing the book. And what the most obvious thing that I learned, and then I'll tell you the couple of less obvious things, but the most obvious thing that I learned was how hard I was working without even knowing that I was working at it of trying to fit my professional life together with my life as a husband and a dad on the other hand in a way that 
actually worked for everybody involved, mm -hmm. everybody involved being me, my wife, my son, and my client, and the lawyers I work with. And obviously, I was already doing that even before I wrote the book, but I didn't really realize that I was having to work so hard at it. I mean, one of the questions that you seem to wrestle with throughout the entire book, and I think it sounds like your wife also wrestles with this question, and maybe your son as well, is why you continue to do this work. Uh, do you think you have a better idea, having done the book, why you continue? I mean, you, 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 you say at one point, a good day for you is when, so when no one dies. Right. That's, and it's not like, you know, even cancer doctors have days when they're, you know, they get meaningful remissions. Yeah. Uh, your, uh, the work that you do is considerably grimmer than that, it seems. So uh, do you have a better idea, having done this book, why you continue to do this kind of work? No. And you'll notice that you, know, you asked me what I learned when I wrote the book. And if I had learned why I do it, that probably would have been the number one thing I said. I, 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 I don't know. Um, uh -huh. You know, I mean, I can tell you that when I've tried to stop, I tried to stop once I really tried to stop, and then there was another time I kind of half-heartedly tried to stop, and on neither occasion did I stop. And on both occasions, you know, I can tell you that I felt... You say you tried to stop? You yeah. You sound like you're, you know, an alcoholic. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I think that it probably has some... It probably has something in common with, uh, with addiction. I mean, I, I tried to stop. I decided I wasn't going to take any more cases. Uh -huh. And the way you get cases is that either the inmate writes you or a lawyer who wants to get off the case writes you or the judge calls you. It's, you get cases. And so I decided I was just going to say no. You know, I wasn't going to seek out any appointments. And if anybody called, I was going to say no. Because you felt burned out? Because it, the, it got, it, the work had gotten to you? Because I felt ineffectual, you know, I, there were there, there there's a death penalty. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Michael Mello. He died last summer. He had been a death penalty lawyer in Florida. His most famous client was a guy named Joe Spaziano, and then he quit doing death penalty work and he moved up to Vermont and he taught at Vermont Law School until he died. Died young, I think. He was he couldn't have been much older than I am. He was probably he certainly wasn't sixty. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember he wrote a book. Boy, it's been a long time now. It's probably 20 years old. And at the, at the time that I read it, I thought it was horrible. It, I have a philosophy, which is that if I read a book and I think it's terrible, I'm not going to write a review of it because mm -hmm. I don't understand people who write reviews of terrible books. Why would, why would you do that? I just generally only write reviews of books I like, and if it's a terrible book, I just don't write a review. And I think the one and only book that I've ever made an exception for was Michael Mello's book. I thought it was terrible, and not terribly written, but that the argument was terrible. And I wrote a very negative review about it. And his argument was that death penalty lawyers needed to, that the professional death penalty lawyers, people like me, people mm -hmm. like him, mm -hmm. needed to stop doing the work because we were participating in this corrupt, unjust process, and by participating in it, we were enabling it. Yes. And I just thought it was utterly wrong-headed in that he had disgust, you know, he was, he, he had just burned out, and then mm -hmm. he was, you know, characterizing it as an epiphany when it was really just that he was tired, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and he and I had a very unpleasant exchange, I remember. It bothers me to this day because I didn't ever get to apologize to him, even though I felt like I owed him an apology. Uh, and he and I had a very unpleasant exchange, both in public correspondence and private correspondence. It was in the days before email, so they were actual letters. And about 15 years later, I finally thought there was something to what he was saying. Maybe. 10 years later, 12 years later. And that was when I decided I was going to try not to do it anymore because I felt like I mm. was participating in it. And I thought, you know what? Mello might have been onto something. Mm. And I never said anything to him, which I feel very you know, bad about. Now, I ultimately decided that he's not right after all. Um, but I think the difference is that I don't think that he's obviously wrong. 
Um, mm -hmm. My original reaction to him that he was obviously wrong and that it was just all a bunch of bunk that he had thrown out there as a way to justify his own inability to do the work anymore. And I, I don't think that anymore. Um, I think that it's actually a legitimate, it's a legitimate argument. I don't, I don't share it, but I, 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 I entertained it for a while, and so I tried to stop doing the work. And what I found was there are a lot of great lawyers in Texas who, who do this work. And the mathematics are that if I quit today and I decided I'm not working on any more of these cases, that 48 out of the 50 guys I represent would learn would land in perfectly great hands. Mm -hmm. They would land with lawyers who are at least as good as I am, at least as dedicated as I am. But two of them would end up with somebody terrible mm -hmm. who didn't care about them, who didn't care about litigating aggressively. And it's, it's the fear of what would happen to those two that just makes it impossible for me to walk away from it. Ever? I don't. So far, I'll say ever. You know, I mean that that could change, and of course, it doesn't make any sense because those two are going to get executed anyway, right? Probably, whether I'm their lawyer or whether somebody else is. Um, but I think that they're they're entitled to have somebody who is going to who's going to battle up until the very end, and it bothers me that if I walked away, they might not get that. David Downs, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very I enjoyed much. Enjoyed it. Thank and you. let me just uh, mention the book again. Here we'll get a shot of it: the autobiography of an execution. Just a terrific memoir. Thank, Thank you. Thanks I so much. Appreciate it.